Uh, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Again, that's 1 Timothy chapter 3. Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. This quote from a speech by Winston Churchill, delivered to the House of Commons in November 1947, captures quite perfectly the dilemma of human government. Government is established to create order in society, and it does this through the establishment of laws that are meant to uphold justice and restrain evil. And of course, there have been all kinds of theories about which type of government is the most effective at doing this over the years. There are absolute monarchies, constitutional monarchies, military dictatorships, communist oligarchies. There's direct democracies, democratic republics, and the list goes on and on. Some people wonder, should all the power be placed in the hands of one person? After all, won't that make everything work more efficiently when there's just one ultimately and presumably qualified decision maker? Others say, no, there's strength in numbers. You need to pool political power together. You give the most amount of people possible input into the the, the decision-making process and they're the most likely to determine the right outcome. Or even if it's not entirely right, at least it will be just since people should have the right to say how they are governed. There are all kinds of opinions, not only about who should govern or how many, but even on how power should be distributed as well. Should it be awarded by birth, for instance? Should it be passed down from one generation to the next to a particular family as a stewardship? Or should it be awarded by merit? And if so, what kind of merit? Should it be intelligence, wealth, moral character? Or is political power something that all people possess inherently, and so it can only be awarded by a kind of common consent? Again, there are all kinds of theories advocated by all kinds of people. But if there is one thing that we can all agree on, it's that no form of human government that has ever been tried is perfect. They all fail. That's the point that that Churchill is trying to make in this quote. Yes, democracy has its flaws. One could even go so far as to say that if the goal of government is to establish justice and restrain evil, then it's a terrible form of government. It falls far short of the goals it sets out to achieve, but... When you compare it with all the alternatives that are out there, it's the best form of government there is. Yes, it has its flaws. But so does every other system of government. And theirs are far more serious. So yeah, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the rest. Now, the reason this is so, the reason why every form of government fails, Churchill alludes to at the beginning of the quote, and it's the same answer that we would find in Scripture. He says that we live in a world, quote, a world of sin and woe. A world of sin and woe. The reason all forms of human government fail is because no matter what, it places power in the hands of sinful people. There's no way to get around that. That can be just one person, like a dictator or a monarch, or it can be a small group of people, like in an oligarchy or an aristocracy. It can even be a large group of people, as in a democracy. No matter what, though, the outcome is still the same. The laws meant to uphold justice are legislated by the unjust. 
The laws that are meant to restrain evil are enforced by those who love evil. Every form of human government fails because it empowers the very problem that it's designed to correct, and that's man, sinful man. So government is really a two-edged sword. When you have men in power who use their authority for good, it's a blessing. It's a minister of God, according to Romans 13. But when you have men in power who use their authority for sin, for evil, it's a curse. And it's no different with church government. Church government is just like every other system of government in that it has sinful human beings at the head. And these human beings are capable not only of error, but of sin. Now, there are a few very important advantages that the church has which national governments do not. For example, churches have a basic system of government that has been given to us directly by God. So we don't really have to sit around debating who should receive power and how. That's already been laid out for us in the New Testament. This is obviously going to provide us with the best system of government possible for the church. In addition to that, we have the Holy Spirit who frees us from the power of sin. That's a significant advantage because whereas sin is the problem that corrupts human government and whereas we yet struggle with sin as Christians, we are at the same time no longer bound to obey sin. This means that just rule is at least possible in the church. It may not be the outcome every time, but it can happen. And then most importantly, we also have the resurrected Christ. We have the resurrected Christ leading and guiding the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is a perfect and sinless head, a truly righteous king who helps the church to rule well when they come to him in humility and faith. The world doesn't have that. So again, we do have some significant advantages over the world, but even so, even within the church, there's the possibility for power to be either neglected or abused. And when you have men who wield their power for good, they're a blessing to the church. When they use it for sin, it's a curse. And so we must be very careful in selecting men that we appoint to positions of power in the church. It's with this in mind that we are currently discussing the office of deacon. As I explained last week, there are essentially two church offices described in the New Testament, that of the elder and that of the deacon. And if we look at what these offices are and how they came to be, we can see that only one of these is absolutely required for the operation of the church, and that's the elder. That's a must-have. The elders are the overseers of the church. There's substantial evidence in the New Testament to indicate that they are invested with all the power necessary to rule the formal organization called the local church. So uh, we didn't discuss this last week, but, but doctrine, membership, resources, the elders have the authority in the local body to make decisions on all those kinds of things. And if a local church is going to function, they need at least that. They need at least a group of men qualified to lead in that capacity. They need elders. However, that being said, while elders are in this sense the only necessary office, they're not the only recommended office. Again, they're overseers. We saw this last week. We saw that their primary responsibility is the spiritual oversight of the church. And this means that while they're ultimately invested with the authority to oversee every aspect of church life, there are still moments where there are concerns that arise within the church which can distract them from this first responsibility. And it's at this point in the life of a church 
when it's wise for these men to seek the nominations from the church for the office of deacon. A deacon, I explained, is essentially a servant. And we saw in Acts 6 that the apostles appointed such men to care for the physical needs of the saints when those needs became so great that they could no longer oversee those needs without neglecting the spiritual care of the church. This is what the deacon is. This is what they do. They allow the elders to focus on the spiritual care of the church, and they do this primarily by tending to the physical needs of the saints. This means that deacons are not always needed for a church to function, but when the spiritual care for the church becomes so great that the elders can no longer manage both the physical and spiritual care on their own, it's recommended that they be appointed. And this should really be the arrangement of any mature church. As the the spiritual needs of the church grow, there really should be both a body of elders and a body of deacons at work, tag-teaming together to ensure that the church is receiving both the very best physical and the very best spiritual care that it has to offer. Our church is currently in a time of transition. We're not yet at the point where we probably need to appoint deacons, but we're getting there. We're starting to get close. And the way this works in our church is just like what you saw back in Acts 6. In Acts 6, the apostles asked the church to nominate seven men, quote, of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. That's how it works here at Cornerstone as well. Our bylaws state under Article 11, Section C, I'm just going to read here. It says, Whenever there is a need for deacons, the elders slash pastors shall meet this need by recruiting from within the congregation. The elders shall notify the, the congregation of the need for nominations to be made, along with the biblical requirements for nominees. Nominations will be collected from the congregation. The elders shall review and investigate and interrogate the nominees as seems best to them. Sounds kind of scary. It won't be like a spotlight. Interrogate them. Uh, The elders shall then unanimously select and approve from among the nominees who will be the new deacon. Then there shall be a public recognition of this new deacon in a public worship service. Uh, So basically, you recommend a deacon to us, and we evaluate their qualifications, and assuming they're qualified, they're appointed. They're appointed by us. This is important. The model established in Acts 6 is that the congregation chooses the deacons. The congregation chooses and the elders affirm. This is how we believe it needs to be done in our church as well. We don't pick the men for this office. You do. The only point at which Clint and I will not affirm a deacon selected by the congregation is when we believe the man is not qualified. This means that you have to know what this office is and what makes a man well suited for it. Again, the church is is no different than any other type of human government in that it's possible for sinful men to use positions of church authority for their own selfish purposes. It's just as possible for corruption to occur in the church as it is in Congress. This means that you have to be very careful in selecting only those men who will use this office for its intended purpose. And that's the purpose of this two-part message. To equip you with the resources you need to make this crucial, crucial decision in the life of the church. I started last week by discussing the function of the deacon. 
Today I'm going to discuss the authority and qualifications of the deacon. I think, and I think it might be helpful to see these two messages from two different angles. Last week's message looked at the idea of qualification from more of a positive perspective, meaning it explained more than just what's the bare minimum requirement for the office. It explained who will do the office well. If you recall, I said at the end of the message, I said a man who's best suited for this office is probably going to be attuned to the physical needs of the saints. He's going to have a servant's heart, and he's going to be a leader. You're not going to find chapter and verse for those three qualifications per se. It's just a reasonable inference given what the office is for. What we, what we call the, the biblical qualifications are going to be discussed today. And as we get into this discussion, it might be helpful to see this as a, as a negative description of the deacon's qualifications. Meaning, today I'm going to explain what restricts appointment to the office. So last week was very much what commends a man to the office. This week, it's what restricts a man from this office. So two different angles. And our first point of discussion today is the authority of the deacon. The authority of the deacon. The point to be made here is rather simple, so I'll try to be quick with this. But the point is important, and I think it does need to be made. The point is simply this. Deacons do exercise a very real kind of authority in the church. They do exercise a very real kind of authority in the church. It's an authority delegated by the elders, but it's a very real kind of authority nonetheless. The reason I say this is because not every church that adopts an elder-deacon leadership structure necessarily sees it that way. You take this term deacon, and while it seems to be applied in an official sense in 1 Timothy 3, where there's, there's qualifications that a person has to meet to be appointed to the office, At the same time, there are instances in the New Testament where this word diakonoi seems to be used in a less than official capacity. This doesn't always come out in the English because, again, the term means simply servant. And so in those passages that seem to use the word in a less technical sense, the word is often translated either as servant or minister. For example, on more than one occasion, Paul will refer to himself either as a diakonoi, of the new covenant, or as a diakonoi of God. And, and the word diakonoi comes out as servant, not deacon. And that may be easy to understand when he's adding on those phrases that modify the word servant. Servant of the new covenant, servant of God. But in other instances, there's no modifier, and the modifier makes the, the meaning of the word less clear. For example, uh, Tychicus is called a, quote, beloved brother and faithful minister, diakonoi of the Lord in Ephesians 6.21. Paul speaks of him like this as Tychicus carries a letter from Paul to the Ephesians while Paul sits in prison. So is, is Paul speaking in a, in a figurative sense there? Is he saying that Tychicus is just generally a servant of God? Or can he be using the language a bit more te- technically? Is he saying that he's a deacon? When you consider that Paul calls Tychicus, quote, a beloved brother and faithful minister, diakonoi, and fellow servant, sundulos in the Lord, in a different context, it would seem that he perhaps means it in a technical sense. Sundulos of the Lord, that's, that's the figurative language describing the position we all share in Christ. We're all bondservants of Christ. But Tychicus isn't just that. He's also a faithful diakonoi, minister. What does Paul mean there? Was, was Tychicus an actual deacon, or was he just someone who served in the church? It's hard to say, because the meaning of the word itself can go either way. 
In the same way, Paul speaks of Epaphras as a beloved fellow servant, sundulos, and a faithful minister, diakonoi, in Colossians 1.17. What does that mean? Is Paul trying to indicate that Epaphras was a man who was appointed as a deacon in the sense described in 1 Timothy 3? Or does it mean that Epaphras was someone who faithfully served in the church? Again, it's hard to say. The text doesn't directly tell us one way or another. And this sort of thing leads some to suppose that the deacon is not necessarily someone who holds an actual office in the church. Rather, they're simply someone who's recognized by the church as a servant. In other words, it's kind of a title, a name only. Much like the Queen of England today is is called the Queen without having any real authority to rule England, so also the deacon is recognized as a servant without being invested with any sort of new authority to to accompany that title. It's almost like a, a distinguished service award. You know, serve the church long enough and in the right capacity, and so long as you're not disqualified, you'll receive the title of deacon. I, and, and not just I, but we as the elders, we completely reject this understanding of the office of deacon. Not only would such a title be utterly pointless, other than to simply divide the body of Christ up into the super spiritual deacons and the rest for no other apparent benefit than to declare that one group serves more faithfully than the other, but it also goes completely against the purpose of what this office seems to be. You go back to Acts 6 once again, and those men were appointed for a particular purpose, and that was to to, uh, distribute bread to the widows. In other words, they had a job that they were being selected to perform. And that job required that they have access to things like the church treasury. If you don't give them the authority to do those kinds of things, then then why bother appointing them in the first place? I mean, isn't the the whole point of the original deacons to take the burden, to take a burden off the shoulders of the apostles? You, You clearly don't do that simply by recognizing someone and giving them an empty title. Now, someone may say, but but those aren't deacons in Acts 6, and while I I may disagree, it wouldn't solve the issue, because even if you're going just from what Paul is going to write here today in 1 Timothy 3, even if you're going just from that, the implication seems to be that these are qualifications for a particular office. And these qualifications have to be met because of the authority that's being invested in that office. I say that because just before describing the qualifications for the deacon, Paul describes the qualifications for elders just before that. In fact, he describes the qualifications for the elders, and then he says deacons likewise, meaning in the same way. It would therefore make sense that if he's describing the qualifications for the office of elder, he's doing the same for the office of deacon in verses 8 to 13. Deacon is not just a title. It's an office, meaning it's a job with a specific set of functions and responsibilities. Men are appointed to the office so that the responsibilities can be delegated from the elders to the deacons. And just as the elders have the authority they need to discharge their responsibilities in the church, that authority is delegated to the deacons with the responsibilities that the elders pass on to them. It's a package deal. When you look at the list of qualifications and you realize that they overlap from the elder to the deacon, that the only qualification that the elder does have, which the deacon doesn't, is the ability to teach. 
It's because it's the same kind of responsibility that's being delegated to the deacon. The deacon is doing a certain kind of work on behalf of the elder. They're taking, their pla- they're taking things off their plate. And this means that they have to meet the same type of spiritual qualifications, save for the part that has to do with spiritual oversight, which the elders are not delegating but keeping for themselves. Are you following here? The, the, the reason why deacons have to meet a certain set of qualifications is because they have to be vetted before they're given the kind of authority that the elders are going to delegate to them. What kind of authority is this? Well, the biggest one I've already mentioned, and that's access to the church finances. Deacons are responsible to care for the physical needs of the saints. This requires they be given access to church funds so they can then distribute what's needed to those in need. You obviously don't want to give that access to men who are either A, untrustworthy, or B, unable to make those kinds of decisions. Again, that's the most common type of authority that's going to be delegated to the deacon. But like I said last week, depending on what the deacon is called to do, there may be other types of functions in the church which you wouldn't want to distribute to anyone who hasn't proven themselves first. Access to church property, for instance, probably needs to be restricted in some of the same ways you restrict a bank account or a credit card. You may also not wish to hand over unrestricted access to like a church website or email accounts to someone who hasn't first proven themselves a faithful and trustworthy servant in the church. Basically, anything that would require a proven track record of faithfulness before you'd hand it over entirely to someone else for safekeeping, that's the kind of authority that we're talking about. It's not a decision-making authority per se, but it's a stewardship. Elders are entrusting certain aspects of the church to the deacon's care so that the deacons can take uh, that responsibility off the elders' shoulders and allow them to focus on the spiritual oversight of the church. This is how we understand the authority of the deacon. You have to meet certain qualifications, not to lead the church, but to serve the church. Men are vetted as deacons so they can serve the church in ways that they never could apart from the elders delegating certain authority and responsibilities to them. Once this point is understood, the authority of the deacon, it not only helps us understand the qualifications that I'm going to get into in just a moment, it also helps us understand when to appoint men to the office. When does it become necessary to appoint deacons? Well, when it becomes necessary for the elders to delegate the kind of authority that they wouldn't otherwise delegate without a vetting process. Our bylaws state that whenever there's a need for deacons and the elders will request nominations from the church and appoint deacons from those nominations, what it doesn't necessarily state is how that process is supposed to work. Uh, Clint and I have wrestled over this. Uh, For instance, it's it's completely possible uh, that every man in the congregation could be nominated by someone. And if that's so, what do we do then? If a man receives just one nomination, does that mean that he can serve as a deacon? Meaning, supposing uh, you know, 1 Timothy doesn't disqualify him? If just one person nominates them, is that enough? For that matter, are we supposed to install all the men who are nominated, supposing they aren't disqualified? That doesn't necessarily seem right, nor is that necessarily what we're looking for. We don't need that many deacons. But on the other hand, if the elders receive nominations for, say, eight men... And all, men are quali- all eight men are qualified. And then we pared down the list to select the men that we want to see in the office. That seems to defeat the whole purpose of the nomination process. The idea seems to be that you should select 
the deacons, and we just investigate to make sure they're not disqualified from the office. Anything more than that seems like we're overstepping our bounds. So how do we resolve that dilemma? How do you make sure a limited number of deacons are appointed while at the same time making sure the congregation is the one doing the choosing? As Clint and I asked that question, it occurred to us that in Acts 6, the apostles told the church how many men they wanted to appoint to the office. They said, pick out among, uh, from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. They said, this is how many we want. These are the qualifications. Now you tell us who you want. And this makes sense. If you understand that this is an office that's created when the elders have a certain set of responsibilities that they'd like to delegate, which they can't without vetting those appointed to these responsibilities first. It makes sense that the elders are picking the number when you understand that there is an authority attached to this office. The elders know what kind of, uh, what kind of responsibilities they want to delegate, much like the apostles there in Acts 6. They understand which of these responsibilities will require a vetting process because of the authority attached to them. And so they have an idea about how many men should be appointed to the office. So the elders decide the number. That's actually what our bylaws state, by the way. It says, uh, the number of deacons shall be, shall be as many as is deemed necessary by the elders. And at this time, Clint and I have discussed, and we agree that we're probably looking to add only about two deacons right now. Two deacons. Now, I say about two, uh, because we'd reserve the right to add more from your nominations if we think there's a man who might balance out the strengths and weaknesses of the top two men you nominate. But basically, we're asking for just two nominees. In the near future, our members are going to be receiving an email describing how this nomination process works. But the long and the short of it is that we're asking you to elect two men that you want for the office, and then we're more or less just going to affirm your choice. So then, how will Clint and I decide whether or not a man is qualified to be invested with this kind of authority? So we've received your nominations. What are we going to do then? What are we going to check them by? The answer comes in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. Let's read this passage together. After describing the qualifications for elders, Paul lists the qualifications for the deacon, saying, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There really shouldn't be anything in this list that's too surprising, considering what we've learned about the deacon thus far. In fact, I think if you understand the function and the authority of the deacon, then what Paul says here is just common sense. It's logical. First, Paul says the deacon must be dignified. I like the way John MacArthur describes this attribute. He says, Men of dignity translates semnos, which could be also be translated serious or stately. Semnos contains the idea of being serious in mind, as well as in character. It comes from the the root word that means to venerate or to worship. Those characterized by it have a majestic quality of character that makes people stand in awe of them. In short, a deacon 
has a kind of weight to them. People naturally respect them. And where does this respect come from? It comes from the sobriety of mind and the seriousness of thought that they possess in each and every kind of situation. There's someone who's, who's not easily shaken in a time of crisis. They keep their cool even when things are hot. And yet at the same time, it's a coolness that is not expressed in mere lightheartedness or flippancy. They take things seriously. But not in the sense that they're going to blow up in anger or something like that. Rather, they're even keeled. They're not easily shaken, either one way or the other. And this this self-possession of character, this dignified manner, leads others to esteem and respect them. This is important because that respect is what enables people to follow them. People sometimes get this misunderstood. Leadership isn't something you award to someone. You can't make someone a leader simply by giving them a title. It can help sometimes. But if a person doesn't command respect through the force of their character, if they don't possess the type of attributes that compel people to follow them, then it's only a matter of time before the people will rebel and bring the office into disrepute along with that person's character. We see this play out all the time, right? You've probably all had coaches or teachers or perhaps even parents who possess the office of authority but who at the same time, either through their hypocrisy or their timidity or their ignorance, commanded disrespect. And what do people do in that situation? What do they do when they have someone who has the office of authority without the character fit for it? They either pay lip service to the office, meaning they yield a kind of superficial obedience while mocking the authority behind their back, right? Or they outright rebel and disrespect the authority to their face. I like the way MacArthur put it one time. Uh, I forget the setting, but one time, I remember, I think it was in chapel, and he said, do you know, you want to know if you're a leader? He said, then look around and see who's following you. Leadership isn't something that's awarded. It's something that's earned. And that's what Paul's pointing out here. As we've seen, the deacon is a servant, but they're a servant leader. They possess a delegated authority from the elders, which will at times require the congregation to follow their lead as well. How do you get a congregation to do that? How do you get them to buy into the kind of respect that the office of deacon demands? Well, you don't. You don't. You don't put men into the office and then tell the people, now you respect them. No, you take men they already respect and you put them into that office. This is why it makes so much sense in the denomination process to ask the congregation, you tell us, you tell us, who do you want to lead? You start there because that tells you who they're willing to follow. Again, people sometimes misunderstand this part of leadership. There are two kinds of leaders. There are leaders who drive the sheep from the back. They they whip and they beat the sheep into submission. They use their power, right, to get people to yield. And then there are leaders who lead. They walk before the flock. And the flock willingly follows because of the love they have for that leader. The model of leadership that we find in the New Testament is of the latter kind. It's a leadership that compels obedience instead of just demanding it. That's the sort of leadership that you find with the deacon. They're dignified. 
They command respect. Second, they're not double-tongued. The idea here seems to be that there's a consistency in what they say. They're not duplicitous in their speech, saying one thing to one person and then another to someone else, and they certainly don't lie. Leadership often requires giving people hard answers, giving answers that they don't always like. And it's no different for the deacon. As they assess someone's financial status, for instance, they may have to tell someone no. They may have to say to someone, the church can't help you in this instance. And when people ask why not, they're going to have to give them a straight answer, and people might not like the answer they have to give. The temptation in these types of situations is to soften the blow by perhaps not telling a lie exactly, but by just not telling the whole truth. That's our natural tendency. We want people to like us. And so we're tempted to tell them things they want to hear. And so sometimes we'll say one thing to one person to curry their favor, and then when we have to say the, when we have to tell the same story to someone else, we'll change the story to their liking. We'll adjust it a little bit. So that no matter who we're talking to, everybody still likes us. That's the temptation that comes in leadership. And the problem is that eventually, when you do that, eventually the truth is going to come out. People are going to realize you haven't been dealing straight with them. And when that happens, your integrity is shot. People can't trust you anymore. And when they can't trust you, again, they won't follow you. This really goes without saying, doesn't it? I mean, you, you can't lead people if they don't believe what you're telling them. Further, you don't want to invest authority in someone who is not trustworthy, right? Because they're going to abuse that authority. And that's really what these next two qualifications come down to. Not addicted to much wine and not greedy of dishonest gain. Not addicted to much wine means they're not a drunkard. It doesn't necessarily mean that they never drink, but they don't let alcohol or any other substance, for that matter, control them. That's very important. Not just because those types of substances are, are capable of impairing judgment physically when they're, quote, when someone's, quote, under the influence. But really, any, any type of addiction is going to impair judgment spiritually, even when you're not drunk or high or, or whatever. You can't really think straight when you're enslaved to a life-dominating sin. Like Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. People with addictions are consumed by when they're going to get their next fix. That desire distorts their priorities. And so when you have Christians struggling with addictions, you can't really say that they're wholly devoted to God. They have one eye on God, but they have another eye on their addiction. They're committed to feeding that too. This means that the person who's addicted to wine or other narcotics can't be trusted to make sound decisions. You don't want to put them in a position of authority. Nor do you want to put someone in power who's, quote, greedy for dishonest gain. When you consider the function of the deacon, this is probably the most obvious of all the qualifications. The deacon's primary concern is for the care of the physical needs of the saints. This means they need access to the church treasury. Do I really even need to explain what the problem would be with giving someone who is greedy for dishonest gain access to the church treasury? It's obvious, right? There's countless stories of dishonest leaders pilfering church funds. That history goes all the way back to Judas, doesn't it? Long history of this in the church. You can't trust greedy people around money. 
because they're bound to be tempted to steal it. And note this, this means that really, if you think about what Paul is saying here, what this is saying is that even if a man doesn't have a history of theft, if there's a pattern of greediness in his life, that's probably not a temptation you want to expose him to. Because there's a good chance he's going to fall and sin against the church. Fifth, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is an interesting one because it has to do, it has to do not necessarily with actual sins that the man has performed, but with his conscience. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? He needs to have a clear conscience. That seems weird. Why does it, why does it matter whether or not his conscience is troubled? What does that have to do with anything? I think you find the answer in Romans 14 when after explaining that it's not necessarily wrong to eat certain types of food, Paul then says in verse 23, this is Romans 14, 23, he says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, it doesn't matter if it's actually a sin to do something. Paul's saying if you think it's a sin, if you think it's a sin, and then you do it anyway, If you go against your conscience, it's still a sin. Why is that? Well, it's because whether your understanding of the issue is correct or not, your willingness to go against something that you think is wrong is an expression of rebellion in your heart. The fact that you think it's wrong to do it and then do it anyways shows that you're willing to rebel against God. You see, the man who lacks a clear conscience... He also lacks integrity. And again, you need men of integrity in this position. It's important not only for the respect that's required for leadership, but because of the stewardship that you're entrusting that man with. People will not follow those who lack integrity, nor should you want to invest authority in that type of a man. So the deacon should be a man of conviction. A man of conviction. He needs to be the kind of man that stands his ground even when it's unpopular, even when it means going against the grain. Find a man who's willing to do the hard thing. Find the man who's willing to do the hard thing. Not because it is popular, but simply because it is right. And you found a man who's ready to lead. You found a man who's ready to serve as a deacon. Number six, they must be tested. That comes in verse 10. I want to come back to that one at the end, so let's tuck that away for a minute. They must be tested. Number seven, verse 11. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Look at that list there. Do you know what that is, what that list is? That's the same list that I just described. Dignified, not double-tongued, not liars, right? Sober-minded, faithful. That's the same qualities that you find in verses 8 to 9. Only this time it's applied to the deacon's wife. Now, the word here for wives is gune in the Greek, and it can mean either wife or simply woman, depending on the context. And for this reason, some will say that it's possible for a woman to serve as a deacon. Without getting into a ton of detail here, we would say that the proper interpretation is wives here, not women. And and this is essentially for two reasons. Uh, The first is theological. And, 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 And that reason is that nowhere else does Paul envision women in positions of authority in the church. In fact, he expressly forbids it. And of course, that hasn't, doesn't have anything to do with ability. It has nothing to do with ability, necessarily, but role. 
There's a distinct order that God has given to men and women in the church, one that's rooted back in creation. And Paul says that this order should be reflected in the church. In fact, he made this point not ten verses earlier, back at the end of chapter 2. So it's in the immediate context here. So if deacons are invested with a kind of ecclesiastical authority, which I think clearly they are, then it wouldn't make any sense for Paul to be speaking of simply women here. It would be completely out of character for him to speak of women assuming a role of authority in the church. So I think the theological context demands that we read this word as wives. And second, I think the literary context demands the same conclusion. If you look in verse 12, Paul still has one more qualification coming. That qualification clearly is directed at the men. Let deacons be the husband of one gunakos, wife. For Paul to be speaking of the qualifications of women deacons, it would mean that he's going from speaking about the qualifications of men in verses 8 to 10, then the qualifications for women in verse 11, and then back to the qualifications for men in verse 12. And he apparently has a different qualification for the men than what he has for the women, that he be the husband of one wife. That doesn't make any sense. For that matter, why would Paul need to list the qualifications again if he's speaking of the same office? Why would we ever think that a woman would be held to a different standard of service from a man? That doesn't make any sense. In short, if Paul's point is to simply make sure we understand that women are also eligible for the office, there's a clearer way to do that than by repeating the qualifications. I think it's far easier to understand that what Paul is saying here is that it, wasn't, it isn't just the deacon that has to meet a certain set of qualifications. But his wife, his wife, has to meet a similar set of qualifications as well. Now, some would object to this by saying, well, what about the elders? Paul never places this qualification on the elders. Why would he have a qualification here for deacons, which he doesn't place on the elders? And it's not as if Paul tells us, so I don't know we can necessarily answer that question with any certainty. We can only speculate. But I would ask you to remember what the job of the original deacons was. What was that job? It was to distribute bread, wasn't it? And distribute bread to whom? To widows. Paul's going to address this issue in chapter 5, this very issue. He's going to discuss which widows the church should provide for. And listen, guys, listen, guys. Not only are those single ladies perhaps single, uh, are they not only perhaps lonely? And at this point in history where women are treated in the way they are in society, definitely vulnerable. But some of them are apparently still quite young. The younger women aren't permanently enrolled on the church's care list. Paul says they need to remarry, but presumably until that occurs, the church is providing for them. So who do you think a godly deacon is going to take along with him when he goes to visit one of these widows? No matter their age, right? Is he going to go alone? Of course not. No, he's not going to go alone. He's going to bring a woman with him. And not just any woman, he's going to bring his wife. Again, we can't say this with any certainty, but it makes sense, doesn't it? That's that's logical given what we know about the first deacons. And if that's so, doesn't it make sense that their wives are going to have to meet the same sort of qualifications that they are since they're essentially doing the job together? I mean, their wives are going to be exposed to the same temptations, the same sort of information that their husbands are. This means they need to be just as trustworthy. 
See, the difference between the deacon and the elder is that the elder doesn't necessarily have to include his wife in the shepherding work he does. In fact, I know many elders that don't. They make it a point not to tell their wives about all the little details of the the spiritual issues that are brought to them at church. And I think in many cases there's wisdom in that. They're not just protecting their wives, they're protecting the people they're counseling. Their wives don't need to know about the sin going on in other people's lives. But the deacons can't, but the, the elders can get away with that because if they need to meet people, say another woman, they can do it in public or at the church with other staff where everything is clearly above board. The deacon doesn't have that luxury. He doesn't have that luxury. Again, they care for the physical needs of the saints. And this requires that they sometimes go into people's homes. Like they have to go into their physical house to do their job. And sometimes those homes are the homes of single women. There's no husband around. Let me ask you, do you think think that the deacon should go there alone? And if not, who do you think he should probably take with him? Isn't the most natural choice, the safest choice, his wife? Ladies and gentlemen, that's why Paul says, oh, and their wives need to have the same qualifications. It's because while their wives aren't deacons, they are clearly associated with the deacon's work. They need to be just as faithful, just as trustworthy. Uh, keep this in mind, by the way, as you're thinking about who to nominate. There's a sense in which it's, just, it's not just the husband you're nominating, but the wife as well. More so than with the elder, the husband and wife will be working in tandem by necessity. You're nominating a team. So is she well suited for the office? Does she fit these kinds of qualifications? Next qualification, number eight, verse 12. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and own households well. Uh, Literally, there to be a one-woman man meaning they're faithful to their wives. And I think you can see at this point, that's not just a random moral checkbox that needs to be filled. It's essential to the job. It's essential to the job. Both deacons and elders are going to occasionally work with women who aren't their wives. Not only that, just by, not, only, not only does that just by itself put them in a position of temptation where they might try to initiate a relationship with one of these women, but keep in mind, think about the qualifications here, keep in mind, they're respectable men. They're dignified men, and not only that, but they're showing genuine concern and care for the women in the church. Listen, for a godly woman who's maybe married to an unbelieving husband, or perhaps for a divorcee who's lonely and tired of trying to find a godly husband, that can be attractive. You understand, elders and deacons need to be a one-woman man, not simply so they won't go looking for temptation, but because a lot of times temptation can come looking for them. If they're not rock solid in their commitment to their wife, an opportunity is going to present itself, one that maybe they didn't go looking for, and they're going to fall. Again, there are countless examples of church leaders getting wrapped up in an affair, and they don't always go looking for that. A lot of times it comes to them. This is why the deacon needs to be a one-woman man. He needs to be a man who's known for his faithfulness to his wife. He also needs to be a good manager of the home. Again, there's reason for that. Paul explains with the elders back in verse 5, saying, with the same qualification, he says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Again, character is consistent. 
Do you want to know if a man is a leader? Do you want to know if he commands respect? Look at his children. Do they obey him? If his own children don't respect him, don't think the church will. Leadership starts there. If he doesn't know how to get his own family to respond to his authority there, he isn't going to start to figure it out in the church. So is he a good manager of the home? Do his children respect him? Finally, returning back to verse 10, let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. This was the sixth of the the eight or the nine qualifications for the deacon, depending on how you number them. Uh, The deacon needs to be proven before entering the office. The character I've just described, it's not something they display in flashes. No, the deacon displays it over time. That's important because you don't want a man to regress once he's entered into this office. You want to know that he's this way to stay. This is especially important when you treat deacon appointments the way that we do by saying that they're essentially life appointments. They're permanent. You can remove a man from the office if he disqualifies himself, but obviously that's not preferred. That's a very painful process for a church. Far better is it to, do, to, for, uh, to make sure that you appoint a man who won't disqualify himself. And the way you're going to know that is by appointing a man who has a proven track record of faithfulness. This is at least part of the reason why we haven't appointed deacons so far. The church plan itself is only five years old. Many of the eligible men who attend here have attended for only a fraction of that time. Basically, there, hasn't been, there just hasn't been a sufficient track record to go around and start appointing deacons. It takes time to know if someone's qualified. So the deacon should be proven first. And by the way, this means that if you want to know who meets these qualifications, start looking around. Men aren't appointed to the office so they can start acting like a deacon. Men who act like deacons are appointed to the office. That's the way it's supposed to work. So again, start looking around you. See who's already demonstrating these kinds of qualities. This is why I saved this point for the end, because I want to point out that all the qualities I just mentioned should already be evident in the deacon. So who's already like this? Who in your mind fits this description? In the next few days, our members should be receiving an email describing how the nomination process works. In the meantime, I would encourage you to consider your nominations in light of all that I've been saying here over the past couple weeks. The deacon, again, is someone who cares for the physical needs of the saints. They're thinking of tangible ways to serve the body. So the elders are are trying to figure out how to advance the church spiritually. And the question that the deacons are asking is, how can we serve one another? They're leading and organizing that effort. How do we serve one another? You know what this means? It means that if you appoint the right men to the office, men who pursue the the physical needs of the church with the same kind of intensity that the elders pursue its spiritual needs, then it means the deacons become the vehicle through which the church realizes its love for one another. And I think if we understand the office rightly, that's not just in times of crisis. Of course, that may be their main responsibility. They're the last line of defense to make sure that people in the church who are in need get help. But at the same time, the idea is that they're servants who are helping the church administrate their service to one another. So I think if we understand the office rightly, then they're the ones who are thinking proactively and creatively about what we can do to help one another in simple but meaningful ways, even when there isn't a crisis. 
You know, they're the ones saying to the church, you know, so-and-so needs to put in a new fence this weekend. Does anyone want to come help? They're keeping track of those kinds of things, and they're thinking, how can we as a body help one another? So you put the right men in this office, and you know what happens? What happens is the church's love for one another is realized. I can't tell you enough how important this role is. You go back to Acts, for instance. As I pointed out last week, the deacons are installed to avert a major crisis in the church. The church is experiencing this this amazing fellowship early in Acts, and as it's experiencing this fellowship, it's exploding under the teaching of the apostles. They are exploding both numerically and spiritually. People are being added to the church. People are growing in Christ. And then this complaint comes up among the Hellenists, and it threatens the whole endeavor. There in Acts 6, some of the widows are mistakenly overlooked, and the Hellenists start to think something's up. They think the slight was intentional. This still happens in the church today, doesn't it? One believer gets a lesser level of attention from the church than another as they struggle through the same issue. And what's the natural thought? They begin to think it was intentional. Or perhaps worse, they think it wasn't intentional. And it just means no one cares. Either way, do you know what happens when that occurs? What happens is that believer's view of the body of Christ is diminished. And they start to grow disillusioned with the church. And you know what happens then? We actually discussed this in my home fellowship group a couple weeks ago as we asked the question, what causes Christians to abandon their first love? Several of us noted that when the church fails to act like the church, that weakens our faith. We expect the church to act different than the world. And when they don't, our zeal grows cold. Evangelism stops, right? Look, this isn't exactly a mystery as to why the gospel doesn't advance when the church doesn't love one another. It starts with us. Our love grows cold and we stop telling other people about Jesus when we don't love one another. That's what's about to happen with the complaint from the Hellenists in Acts 6. And then the deacons are are installed. And what happens? Luke notes, verse 7, he says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The crisis is is adverted, and the gospel continues to advance. The installation of deacons does that. That is how important they are to the body. I have to say, if there's one thing that I personally have become convicted of as I've spent this past couple of weeks thinking about the role of the deacon, it's that these men are really just as important to the growth and vitality of a church as the elder. They may not... They may, they may be under the authority of the elders, but it's most certainly not because this is a second-class office. In terms of esteem, they should be held in equal regard because they matter that much. And this also means that a church should be just as vigilant, just as judicious in their appointment of men to this office as they are to the office of elder because they matter that much. So consider carefully who you will appoint to this office. You know, one of the wonderful things about a church plan is that you get to start from scratch. You don't have to try to uproot errors that were made 20 years ago, which often take a lot of time. Instead, you start with a blank slate. It's the difference between gutting and renovating an old house versus building new. That's the opportunity we have here with this plan, to start with a fresh foundation. 
But as the structure goes up and things get connected, it's harder to go back and fix mistakes. What we have here is an opportunity, an opportunity to see the purpose of this office fulfilled in the life of our church with all the blessing that comes with that. The choice you make here will determine whether or not that happens. And that's most especially true this time around. I have to point this out. That's most especially true this time around because these first two deacons are going to be the ones who set the tone for this office for all the other deacons that follow. They're going to be the pattern for all the rest. Keep this in mind. Deacons can step down and they can be removed if they disqualify themselves. But apart from that, according to our bylaws, they're essentially appointed for life. We don't have annual elections or term limits or anything like that. So the two men you appoint now, they could still be deacons 20 years from now. The number of deacons is always going to be limited. And you don't get to swap these two out for someone else you like better down the road. So I'll say it again. Consider the matter carefully and choose wisely. Your vote will have a dramatic impact on the future of this church. With this in mind, let's close by asking God God for guidance in this process. We closed this way last week, but I think considering the weight of this decision, it's appropriate to do it again. Now we know the qualifications. Let's pray that God would lead us to select the right men. Let's pray.